0: Hello everyone and welcome to Fair Voice. I am Hannah Sirach, your host. Fair Voice is affiliated with Fair Mormon, but my opinions represent my own and are not necessarily the opinion of the Church of Jesus Christ of Latter-day Saints or Fair Mormon, the organization. Thanks for listening to today's episode. Today we are talking about philosophy and philosophy... I feel like is a very interesting topic for several reasons. Um, One of them is the phrase philosophies of men mingled with scripture. And I feel like there are some philosophies of men, some theories that exist outside of the scriptures, that exist outside of a Latter-day Saint worldview. But at the same time, I do believe that there are Views that you can derive from the scriptures that can help illuminate what the scriptures are saying. These are not external theories that you apply, but these are views that come naturally out of a Latter-day Saint perspective. Today, we are having an awesome interview. Our interview is with Tarek D. Lecour. Tarek D. LaCour is, as I say later on, a Texas A&M student. He has a blog that he will tell us about, and he is a philosopher. So let's jump into the interview today.
1: All right, awesome. So I'm with Tarek D. LaCour. He is a philosopher of neuroscience and a student at Texas A&M. Tarek, how are you today?
2: I'm doing well, Hannah. How are you?
1: Great. Thanks. Let's just jump right in by I want to first have you plug your blog. So can you tell us a little bit what's the name of your blog? What do you do on your blog? That sort of stuff.
2: My blog is called Footnotes to Hume in honor of the philosopher David Hume, who is my favorite philosopher. I write on various topics at a lay level, so it's not overly academic, but I talk about issues related to philosophy, science, religion, and politics, and anything else people want me to comment on if I know something about it. If I don't know anything about it, I won't write on it. So that's that.
1: Perfect. Thank you. We'll link the blog for you in the description. So let's begin by talking about what the philosophy of science is for those of us who might not know what that means.
2: Philosophy of science is a branch of philosophy that studies the methods of science, how science, uh, what the nature of theories are, what the nature of scientific laws are, uh, how scientific practice differs within particular sciences. For example, there's, for example, philosophy of science is a branch of philosophy, but within philosophy of science, there are different branches, such as I do philosophy of neuroscience and philosophy of psychology. But there's also philosophy of physics philosophy of chemistry philosophy of biology and other philosophies but they're all interested in different questions such as the methods of the sciences how we get answers in those sciences uh, what's the nature of a law every science will use the same terminology but it will mean different things and philosophers are trying to clarify those questions and in addition to that philosophers of science will take what the sciences are telling us and ask other traditional philosophical questions such as how do we know things? So philosophers of neuroscience will look at uh, our brain chemistry and structure and see what the correlations are between knowing versus believing versus are there any hardwired intuitions in us that wire us to believe a certain way or are we more of a blank slate, for example, so.
1: I'm going off that. What would you say is the definition of science?
2: The definition of science is like the definition of philosophy, namely it will depend on who you ask. But I would say science is an enterprise that is shaped by experiment and observation and prediction and that its main goal is to find out the nature and structure of reality. So, and so maybe the experimental method to find out what reality is and what it's like.
0: What
1: methods do you think work best for finding out what reality is within theology?
2: Mm. Well, I think that you can have first-hand experiences that can demonstrate something to you, such as lots of people have talked about a burning in the bosom or being overcome with euphoria while reading the Book of Mormon or other sacred texts. That's not something that's just true of Latter-day Saints. That's true of uh, Muslims, Christians generally, and other religions. So you can certainly experiment to see if you can have religious experiences. But I don't think those are finally confirmatory. But I think, as far as the science, the first thing to ask, as far as theology, is to ask whether or not your beliefs are even compatible with what the sciences are telling us. And if they are compatible, then you can press forward with them and keep them a live option. If not, then it might, then it would either. Then I, then I would personally say just discard them. but Or you could hold out and hope that science changes, but that's a little bit begging the question, I think. So.
1: Okay, so kind of going off that, that's a really interesting perspective. How do you think that the sciences then show that the Church of Jesus Christ of Latter-day Saints is true?
2: I don't think that they show that the church is true. I think that the church... The theology of the church is not inconsistent with what science is showing, and I think that, for example, the church's view that God is a material being makes far more sense with what we know of physics and than an immaterial God would be. For, because a big question in philosophy would be, if God is immaterial and outside of time, how is he interacting with the world? Versus if God is a part of the world, then there's no problem. Now, that doesn't prove that God exists, but that certainly is a huge objection. That, that's a huge barrier that's taken down if you take science seriously as I do.
1: What adjectives would you use to describe your philosophical worldview?
2: I am an empiricist, a naturalist, a scientific realist a, um, and also I would call myself a scientistic. That's a term that's coined by one of my other favorite philosophers, Alex Rosenberg, in his book, The Atheist's Guide to Reality.
1: For the terms, um, empiricist and naturalist, could you please explain what these belief systems are and how you relate them to our theology?
2: Yes, empiricism is the stance that knowledge comes through sense experience, so that's very consistent with what I was talking about with science earlier, going with what the senses and observation and experimental evidence are showing us. So an empiricist will of the type of the type that I advocate will say that there's not any non-empirical knowledge, so things like intuitions. And just thinking about things will perhaps give you are clever ways of thinking, but they don't lead to truth. You, you don't know something until you have empirical evidence for or against it. Um, a naturalist would be a person who says that the only, the, um, is a metaphysical position. Metaphysics is the branch of philosophy that asks questions about the ultimate structure of reality. Now, metaphysical questions would be things like, Do I have free will? Does God exist? Those are some ones that common people will ask, even so whether they're a philosopher or a non-philosopher. So a naturalist would say that only the natural world exists. So there's no there's nothing supernatural or non-natural.
1: Can you speak a little bit about how you came to this philosophical worldview and a little bit also about your faith journey alongside that?
2: I got into philosophy probably when I was a child, but I didn't know what philosophy was. But I was asking questions of my mother when I was a Protestant, such as, how do we know God exists? can a person lose their salvation, those sorts of questions I remember asking. And my mom couldn't answer the questions, but she did like that I was asking them. So after I went on my mission, I thought I was going to do, my mission president was Richard Neitzel Holzapfel, who is a area 70 now, but he was a BYU professor in New Testament studies. And I thought I would like to do New Testament studies, but I didn't want to learn Greek or any other language. So I told him, I think maybe I'll study, I need to study something else. And then for some reason I said, I think I want to study philosophy. I actually was on a phone call with him because he and I had had meetings together about talking about what New Testament studies would be like. And then I said, I think I want to study philosophy. This was before I even knew that philosophy was an undergrad uh, something you could get a degree in. This is how little I knew about it at the time. And my mission president was very supportive, said that he said yeah, that's actually a great area for you. So that was that. Then I came home and I was talking to a friend who had majored in philosophy. He was a lawyer and asking him what how to do philosophy because again, no No one had ever told me anything about it, and when I had told other people I was interested in philosophy, they kept repeating that phrase, philosophies of men mingled with scripture, basically a subtle way of saying, please don't do that. Sadly, I didn't listen to him, perhaps, but um, I asked my friend Ron about it, and he said, You should probably find an area and people whom you can relate with and kind of study them because you're not going to be able to study everything. And he mentioned David Hume, who was his friend's favorite philosopher and his friend has gone on to be a leading world expert on Hume. And so I went home and went on Wikipedia and started to look at Hume and I was blown away by what he was saying. Not that I agreed with it, but I was certainly blown away. And then Course later I came to believe he was right. But so I then I began to read lots of books, uh, began taking classes. I, I I did my undergraduate studies at Utah Valley University, and their way of doing philosophy is certainly a lot different than mine, but I continued to learn more about the sciences, and I remember one paper that really changed my life, or two papers actually were by the same philosopher. Willard Van Orman Quine, his paper, Naturalized Epistemology and Two Dogmas of Empiricism, where he talks about how philosophy should integrate with science and be a part of science. That's how you would answer actual questions rather than just being in your armchair and thinking about it. And then uh, disciples of Quine, such as Daniel Dennett, Alex Rosenberg, Stephen Stitch, uh, Peter Carruthers, Studying them led me to think that I, if I was going to do a graduate program in philosophy, I'd have to do one that also allowed me to do science. So when I applied to graduate schools, I was saying, can I also do graduate work in the neurosciences? So that's why I came to Texas A&M, was because they require that you get a master's or a second doctorate in something else. So I'm working on that as well. So that's how my philosophical journey went as far as conversion stories i study i began researching research, the church when i was 15 i researched it for about 3 years before i joined so i read lots of books pro and con and then i was finally baptized on august 30th 2009 so and then confirmed on september 6th 2009 so my 11th anniversary is right around the corner
1: That's really exciting, and that's really awesome. Thanks for sharing that. One thing that I have been wondering while you were speaking is how you came to view LDS theology through the lens of empiricism and naturalism, if that makes sense.
2: Well, many of the early church theologians in the Latter-day Saint traditions, and there aren't many of them, but people like Orson Pratt, B.H. Roberts took the sciences very seriously and tried to do a theology that incorporated this and let science be their guide to a large extent. So I didn't see that as something that was incompatible with theology. Um, Now, I'm probably, if you look at, Latter-day saint theologians today my approach is different than people like Blake Osler who is a mentor of mine Robert Boylan whom you had on last week uh, Adam Miller or Joseph Spencer but I'm not I'm not too far outfield of where we've been historically I don't think
1: Yeah, I would agree. I think that you guys have some things in common, and obviously, some disagreements on things like open theism and determinism and such things like that. One interesting question that I think comes up with empiricism is how do you define evidence and how do you determine what constitutes good and bad evidence, right? Because we're living in this world where you have evidence that can be used to suggest a whole multitude of things. And I want to know how you analyze evidence
2: well that is going to depend on what you're talking about so, so evidence in physics is going to be different from evidence in neuroscience so one will be evidence would be something like this if you're claiming that something exists it should be it should be something that makes a difference so in other words it's it should be something that's supposed to explain something that would be one uh, another would be piece of evidence would be it should be in the third person, meaning that it's not something only I should have access to. It means we should all be able to, if we understand the testing apparatus, for example, there there is a lot of um, faith in science in this sense, namely as a neuroscientist, I don't know a lot of physics. I have to trust, and I can't do physics myself. I have to trust the physicists that what they've said is correct when during my neuroscience, So there is that element in it, but it it needs to be something that's gonna be observational, experimental, uh, and retestable again. So it can't just, it's not something that admits of one test. It's something that's gonna have to be repeated again and again. It's going to have to be something that explains um, the facts as we see them. That's what a theory is. A theory is our way of making sense of the facts. So that's what I would, how I would define evidence how
1: would a whole how would the holy spirit act as a verifier of truth within this model or would that not be the role of the holy spirit
2: i think that the holy spirit is something that kind of moves us to seek truth but i don't and it can confirm it to an individual, but there's a difference between knowing and showing. You can have an experience that you know that has changed your life and that you can say, I've had this experience of God. The problem comes in, in, but why should I believe that that's the case? So spiritual experiences and the like are fine in the first person, but evidence is more in the third person, so you'd need to give other arguments and reasons for why we should accept those sorts of experiences. So I don't want to leave out the Holy Ghost by any means, but it's not the, it's, it's, it's certainly not the way to, you can't do philosophy and theology by the Holy Spirit, but hopefully you do it with the aid of the Holy Spirit, if that makes sense.
1: Yeah, I agree, and I think that's a really good way to put it, and I think too often people will assume when we say that we have the Holy Spirit act as a verifier of truth, that we mean that we're just receiving all this spiritual knowledge and we're ignoring um, what's in front of us, which is not the case. Um, At this point, I would like to... uh,
2: Can I I add one more thing? I would also say, as an empiricist, you also have to have your experiences be completely on the table, meaning that while you can certainly say you've had certain experiences, that doesn't mean that they're not open to question and prodding by critics. So you, you can't just say, I've had this experience, that's all, end of story. You can say, I've had this experience, so we'll put that on the table and we'll leave it there, but it has to be open to critical evaluation and, and scrutiny.
1: I agree. One question that I would like you to kind of work through, it's kind of like a thought experiment for lack of a better term. I'd like you to pick one issue, such as historicity of the Book of Abraham, Book of Mormon, existence of God, Etc., and talk about the evidences that you think exist for that.
2: Okay. First of all, as an empiricist, I don't really like thought experiments because you can't experiment on them, but uh, sorry, you said book of Abraham.
1: Book of Mormon, existence of God. Just pick uh, Those are suggestions. Those are examples of the types of things like one, one particular issue that you think is, particularly to relevant to Latter-day Saints that you feel like you could speak about, even though it is a thought experiment and you're an empiricist, um, and what evidence exists exist to suggest that the Latter-day Saint interpretation is most correct?
2: I'll use the Book of Mormon because that's the one I have the most acquaintance with and probably most ability to speak on. In science, we use something that's called abduction, which means inference to the best explanation. So there's, a, in science, there'll be lots of live options on the table and you'll have to choose, well, which one's the best one because it's the simplest, it explains the most, things like that. I think in terms of the Book of Mormon, it's a very complex book. And as I read it, I don't see, I, I first of all, I do see how critics can say yes this looks like this borrows from the king james version and other things so i i do i do accept that but i think that the best explanation of all the evidence that we have is that joseph smith had it revealed to him i think that that's a simpler and explanation that has that accounts for all the evidence that we have versus joseph smith making it up as he went, or the other theories I've heard. I've just not seen, I I, I understand that there are other explanations and I think you have to deal with them accordingly. So you don't just dismiss them out of hand. But I think that the simplest and best explanations that Joseph Smith had the book revealed to him rather than wrote it himself or or co-wrote it with others or uh, any of the other explanations.
1: Yeah, I agree. And I think a philosophical framework can be really important to individual Latter-day Saints for developing frameworks for how they can view the gospel of Jesus Christ. So at this time, I kind of want to transition away from your beliefs, um, your specific philosophical approaches, into a broader discussion about why is it important for a Latter-day Saint to understand philosophy, where they can start, and how they can develop their own worldview. So Let's start off with why should, why should someone listening to this podcast care about philosophy? You know, we have that phrase that you mentioned, philosophies of men mingle with scripture, and I've definitely heard that at BYU because of what I study too. Um, so l- let's talk a little bit about that and why a Latter-day Saint should care what that phrase means and what that phrase does not mean.
2: <laughs> philosophy is something that you do every day, whether you know that you use it or not, for example, you make decisions that you think are better supported than other decisions. You assume that you act as a free agent. You um, make moral choices. You do all these things. These are all questions of philosophy, moral philosophy, logic, uh, metaphysics. So you use, the, the, you use philosophy every day. The only question is whether you do it poorly or you do it well. So if you're going to use something every day, I would rather use it well rather than use it poorly. As far as the philosophies of men mingle with scripture, that is a podcast unto itself. But I would say that even when reading scripture and interpreting it, or saying that someone else should interpret it for you, you're using philosophy because you're saying, I can't answer this question, but these experts can. So then the question becomes, but why is this person an expert? And what makes them better than you? That's a philosophical discussion. So philosophy, as I said, is unavoidable.
1: Yeah, and I think that's a really good point. And I think this broader definition of philosophy, which is more more true in a lot of ways, I think can be difficult for people to grapple with. I think when people imagine philosophers, they imagine, you know, Socrates on the top of a tower calling down to the people. They don't imagine the discrete individual instances where you think through your own decisions. So how-
2: That would show how much they don't read because Socrates often (laughs) in the platonic dialogues is generally sitting down with people having dinner and talking through a question with the ordinary person rather than just telling people what to believe. Usually Socrates actually doesn't tell people what to believe. He just points out, this is your reasoning. This is where you've made a mistake and then invites them to give a, a different argument. You'll see that in some of Plato's classic works like Republic and um, Euthyphro, where Socrates is basically asking questions rather than giving answers. That may be the difference between the philosophers and the scientists, where the philosophers are asking the questions, and then the scientists are doing the answers, and then good philosophy and good science is when you merge the two.
1: That's a really astute point, and I, I do like that point a lot as a Latter-day Saint, um, say like I'm an average Latter-day Saint, I have a bachelor's degree, whether or not it's even in humanities is aside from the question, how do I begin? Where do I begin to learn philosophy? What, are, what should I read? How do I know that I'm on the right track? Because it is a very broad discipline in a lot of ways.
2: Yes. Um, the best thing to do would to be at least to take a introductory class in the subject where you could kind of work through the different areas and they could kind of point you to different books and things to read. But if that's not available to you, there are some books that you could start with reading. For example, if you wanted to understand philosophy of science, a very good book is Theory and Reality by Peter Godfrey Smith. It presupposes no expertise at all or background at all in philosophy or in science. It's written to the layperson, and you'll get a lot out of it. Peter Godfrey Smith is one of the leading philosophers of biology in the world. Very, very brilliant guy. That's a place to start. start. That's a That book has a special place in my heart because I am a philosopher of science. So that would be one area. Um, if you wanted to look at philosophy uh, generally, A book could be uh, Philosophy, A Beginner's Guide by Peter Cave, where he will introduce you to most of the main areas of philosophy. If you wanted to look at moral philosophy, a good book would be Fundamentals of Ethics by Rush Schaefer Landau. Another book on free will, since that's, again, something everyone is interested in, would be A Contemporary Introduction to Free Will by Robert Kane, or or Free Will, The Basics by Megan Griffiths, I think is her name. So those are some books to read, and then I could recommend many, many more.
1: How, as a Latter-day Saint, do you determine what is necessary to believe?
2: I just wrote a blog post a little bit about that, but that was more of what should you believe if you want to stay in the church. As far as what's necessary, I think a good guide would be the Temple Recommend interview questions. Could I answer all of those in the affirmative? So I think there are certain fundamental beliefs of Mormonism, if I'm allowed to use that term. Sorry, President Nelson. I'll repent and do better, just like there's fundamentals of Christianity. For example, in the book of 1 Corinthians chapter 15, St. Paul talks about, I gave to you what I had already received, that Christ died for our sins, he was resurrected, and he ascended, those sorts of things. So those are the kind of the fundamentals of Christianity, that Jesus Christ is the Son of God, that he's resurrected, and that he lives today and died for our sins. And in a similar manner, there are certain fundamental beliefs of Mormonism, namely that Joseph Smith is a prophet of God, that Jesus is the Son of God, that the Book of Mormon is a historical book that leads us closer to Christ, and also that the modern uh, president of the Church of Jesus Christ of Latter-day Saints is a modern prophet. I think those are the fundamentals of that you would have to believe. There are lots of things that I think you can have an open, it, it's an, there are a lot of questions in Mormonism that I think are open questions that don't have, that you don't have to believe one way or the other, but that's where, I, but, but those are, but that's where I would want to start.
1: So with all of those, I feel like you have to have a consistent way to evaluate them and to construct a framework for your beliefs and what i'm seeing in latter-day saint communities is this tendency to um reject some of these claims while accepting others of the claims which i don't think is logically consistent could you talk a little bit about the necessity for a logically consistent worldview within latter-day saint theology to get you to be able to stay in the church
2: Certain beliefs, if, you, if they are rejected, will undermine other beliefs that you have. So if you believe that the Book of Mormon is ahistorical, meaning that it wasn't it, that it's, a, a, it's not a retelling of historical events, but rather is a fictional story, then you'll have to th- then all of the claims in it within it are fictional as well, and those will undermine your other beliefs, such as the Book of Mormon takes as kind of the fact that Jesus Christ resurrected and that he's visited other people besides the people in Palestine. So if, but if Jesus isn't resurrected, or if part, if the big part of the Book of Mormon, as it says on the cover page, is that Jesus is the Christ, the eternal God, if that book is not, is a historical and not true, then we don't have any, we'd have to have, then we wouldn't have any good reasons to believe that. And we also wouldn't have very good reason to believe that Joseph Smith is a prophet or someone we need to take seriously. And then by extension, we don't need to take the modern presence of the church of Jesus Christ, a lot of these seriously either. So that's why I said there are certain beliefs that will be foundational and others will be built on top of those
1: to kind of pick at that a little bit more a lot of the time people will claim that the book of Mormon is inspired fiction not merely fiction without import what would you say to that claim
2: so I don't quite understand I I don't I don't know how you exactly make sense of that but I, I can see why people are saying it it, it it seems to be the case that what they're saying is there's a lot of teachings in the Book of Mormon that I like, or it there there's a lot of there's a lot of philosophy in the Book of Mormon that I think if we used it today would be good, and I think the book is pragmatically useful, but pragmatically useful is not the same as being true. Uh, the Book of Mormon does not treat itself as inspired fiction, and it would seem that the authors. Would be offended if you took that to be, especially Moroni, who seems to be thinking he's going to be judging us at some point. That doesn't sound like inspired fiction to me. But but as I say, you can certainly use that book or any other book to use, to get philosophy from. I mean, you can get, you can use, um, I mean, I, I find Lord of the Rings and Game of Thrones inspiring in some aspects, but at the end that but all i'm reporting is a subjective thing about me not an objective thing that all of us need to take seriously
1: yeah i agree one of the reasons i do like lord of the rings is there there's that catholic, there's that catholic bent to it that if you really dig deep you can find a lot of really good catholic theology
2: well lots of people don't know but j.r tolkien was upset with his friend c.s lewis for joining the church of england rather than the catholic Church, as Col- tolkien was a very devout catholic
1: that is true. Um, kind of going off of that previous comment, what advice would you have for someone who is struggling with the conflicting evidences for the Book of Mormon and is trying to determine how to maintain a consistent Latter-day Saint view? How would you develop your own philosophical framework? And just for frame of reference, like Tarek and I have talked and we definitely have some differing opinions on more of the open question, so it is possible to have Disagreement. There isn't a monolith. It's, t-
2: it's Tarek, by the way.
0: Oh, sorry. No <laughs>
2: Thank worries. Thank you. Okay, so the question was, how do we deal with the conflicting evidence?
1: Yes, and how do you, do you develop your own framework?
2: I think the best way to do this, because most of us are not archaeologists, we're not um, paleontologists or anything, or, or anything else that would be able to, or or Mesoamerican experts or anything like that. So the best we can do is you look at the arguments from the best of both sides and then see which one makes a better argument and side there. That would be my, that would be my assessment. I have all respect in the world for people who say, I've looked at the evidence and I just can't accept the Book of Mormon as historical. I disagree with them, but at least they've done the hard work and made a decision. But it's not something we can, but I would want to emphasize that something that takes a lot of training and thinking, it's not something we can decide over a podcast.
1: I totally agree with that. You you need time to work through these things. With that being said, I feel like the average Latter-day Saint does not have a framework that they use to analyze their faith. How would you develop that framework? Hmm.
2: I think that religion and faith are, and and I would wanna define what I mean by faith. Faith is trusting in something because I have good reason to believe that it's true. For example, when I sat down in this chair, it's not logically impossible that the chair could have not held my weight but i have good reason to think that it did so i sat down in it so that was a belief that was based on evidence but it wasn't it wasn't solid proof and proof again is not something there's a difference between proof and evidence proofs are done in formal logic and mathematics so you know you make a you know, um, a geometric proof that's what proofs are so you don't give for example there is no proof of the theory of evolution. There's evidence that supports that theory. That's, that's one thing. Um, but back to your question, you should look at your religious faith and your religious questions in the same way that you look at other questions, look at the logical consistency, look at the empirical evidence, uh, look for the consequences of belief or non-belief and those things, although those things don't um, constitute truth on their own, that's what I would say, is that you treat your religious faith with the same scrutiny and thought that you treat everything else. So understanding, so this would mean lots of study, namely in scriptural interpretation, in archeology, span in history. There's no point in putting your faith in something that there's no evidence for.
1: I think that's a good point. Could you talk a little bit about different types of knowledge, right? Because I feel like we often talk about knowledge as a spiritual experience where we have the Holy Spirit confirm something to us. So then we have this knowledge through experiences. Could you expound upon the different types of knowledge and how you can evaluate the categories for these?
2: I don't think there are different types of knowledge. I think there's only one type of knowledge, but I think there's degrees of confidence you can have in something. So first person experiences, I would put as a low degree of confidence. I would put higher degrees of confidence in argument and experimental evidence and logical deduction. Uh, Reason being because those are the things that other people can critique and see if you've made an error. Because one thing that psychology has shown us is that we have biases and it's very easy to deceive ourselves. So it's, it's, it's all too easy to hype ourselves into a a belief that we want to be true and we want to believe that's very easy to do. What's hard to do is to have your beliefs all scrutinized and then still be able to defend them, which you can do. But what you're showing is you're not just believing just because you want to believe as the missionary in the Book of Mormon says. I can't remember his name.
1: I have a follow-up question to that, and that's, it's going to be a pretty big question, so just give some initial thoughts. What would you say are the pragmatic differences between confirmation bias and the verification by the Holy Spirit?
2: Hmm. Well, uh, confirmation bias means that you really only look for evidence for which you want to believe so the way to avoid it is to read things that you're prone not to agree with so you need to look at the evidence against what you believe so in philosophy because i'm an empiricist i lead i I take a lot of time reading people who are rationalists who are pluralists uh who are intuitionists and try to look at the arguments that they're making and always opening it leaving it open that maybe I made a mistake because we all make mistakes and all our beliefs are fallible, meaning that they can, they can be wrong. Um, As far as verification by the Holy Spirit, I'm always a bit hesitant to comment on that because I'm not, because I don't know that the Holy Spirit speaks to people in the same way. So I don't know how to differentiate it, but I would say, if, you, if you've had this confirmation after looking at all of the sides of the evidence, you can put a little more weight on it, but even that, you can still hold open as an open question, I think.
1: This might be kind of a weird question, but when you come across anti-Church of Jesus Christ of Latter-day Saints sources, some of them are just bad. And I, I'm not saying that to be derogatory or disparaging, but there are some I, of the, I'm, I'm
2: sure critics of the church would agree with you that there are some that are just yeah. not worth your time.
1: Like the God makers for me is one of those that I just think it isn't really worth our time at this point or the CES letter is another one. Um, how can I determine which, which sources I can read that grapple with my worldview that are actually philosophically born out, that are actually- evidence-based because I do feel like a lot of the more popular ones tend to be not as well sourced or not as well set up. For example, the CES letter has a lot of framing issues with it that I think we've, we've both talked about, the framing issues that lead you to believe that there's only one correct answer. So it, it, it kind of sets out the conclusions for you in the questions. Anyways, that rant aside, how do you determine what are good sources that, are, that you can I'll read make- that conflict with you?
2: Let me comment on the CES letter. While I disagree with it, I think it's something that we should take seriously because I think the author, like many members of the church, was told one story and there was just a lot of information that they weren't told. And I think they deserve, those people deserve an answer. Why wasn't I told this? How, how do I reconcile this? So I think that the questions he, that the author brings up are not silly questions in and of themselves, even though I disagree with his conclusions on them, because obviously I'm still latter to Saint. Um, as far as a person commenting on a different issue, when you look at a book, you should question the relevant credentials. For example, if a person is writing a history book, do does this person have any good background in history are they a professor in that area do they have graduate training in this area and you know are these have their are they publishing with a reputable publisher are they publishing in peer-reviewed journals those sorts of things those are how you would see look at the person's credentials and also at the end just looking at the arguments and the evidence for what they're claiming if there's good evidence for what they're claiming take it seriously and if what they're saying overturns what you'd like to believe then change your belief what are cri- some cri- cri- critics of the church can be can be right they're not they're not all they're not just a priori like they're not just wrong just because they happen to be a critics of the church sometimes the church has done things that are wrong and th- done things that are bad and We've tried to defend it, and maybe we shouldn't. That's what I think.
1: Yeah, Um, I think that yeah, there there is validity to some critiques. I think we can disagree on the extent or degree of that, Um, but there is validity to some people's arguments. My follow-up question to you would then be: What? How do you constitute? How sorry? How would you define a good Latter-day Saint rebuttal? And the reason I'm asking this is because. A lot of the Latter-day Saint scholarship works that are in favor of the church's positions are not published outside of what I like to call the BYU sphere, if that makes sense.
2: Right. Well, there's nothing wrong with, say, publishing with Deseret Book or Fair or someone else. but you can do but you can do better. You should try to, when you publish, try to publish with the best, as always. My view, Terrell Givens does that, he publishes basically entirely through Oxford. Uh, by the time I finish this sentence, he's probably written another five books, so. Um, but just because it's, with, it's published by a church person doesn't mean therefore the arguments don't hold up or that the arguments are good. It, we, we, some things have been published that just aren't very good or are, are only at really a lay level and aren't a scholarly level. And some books are meant to be popular, some are meant to be scholarly. And you should probably early on understand the difference between the two, would be my be my view. It, it's not surprising that the church that church publications come primarily from people who are interested in those, because you gotta find someone who's because publishers are looking at an audience. What is there an audience for? What are people going to buy? So it's not surprising that church people obviously published with church publishers or not church publishers per se because they're not owned by the church but those that have a good relationship with members of the church.
1: I think that's a good point and something that I also like to do is look at what where else the scholar has published. So for ex- Mark Allen writes a good example for me. He publishes in mainstream Mesoamerican journals, but he also publishes through church venues about the Book of Mormon. And it's, it's for the reasons that you said that not many people would be interested in Book of Mormon historicity and archeology. span That's more of a niche thing for people. Um, so a couple of the questions that people just asked me. So what I did is I asked a bunch of people What would you like to ask him um, as we did this interview? And we have a couple fun ones and a couple serious ones. Which ones do you want first? It doesn't matter. Okay. We'll just do like, we'll do every other. We have four. What's your favorite flavor of ice cream and why?
2: (laughs) My favorite flavor of ice cream is chocolate chip cookie dough. And... Simply put, it has cookie dough and ice cream. I don't think you can do much better than that.
1: So one of the more serious ones was, what is the most difficult issue in the Church of Jesus Christ of Latter-day Saints for you to grapple with, and how have you worked through it?
2: As an African-American Latter-day Saint, the hardest issue for me has been racism in the church and the priesthood. Um, I've... My my answer to it is I don't see any evidence that it was inspired and I won't defend that it was
1: yeah and I think that's a fair position to take as well Um, another fun question tell us about your daughter Chloe and your favorite things about her that's from a mutual friend of ours
2: (laughs) (laughs) Uh, Chloe was born on April 15th 2020 so yes good things can happen on tax day She's very, she's a lot like her mother, namely she's very smiley and happy as compared to her father who's more stoic and serious. But she's uh, got a good spirit about her. She seems to love everybody. So that's something she does. She does a lot of sleeping, a lot of eating as most babies do, but she's pretty calm. Uh, I don't notice her crying as much anymore. She'll just go to whoever, unless she's hungry, in which case she will cry, but even adults will do that, so.
1: That is true. And our final question, and perhaps my favorite question of this entire interview, what is your favorite book within the canon? What is your favorite sections of that book and why?
2: That is a very, very hard question. I'm going to go with, my favorite is the New Testament. I am, I've always been a big fan of Jesus of Nazareth and St. Paul, and that's where their works are at, so that's probably why. I think that Paul's letter to the Romans and to the Corinthians, and 1 Corinthians are my favorite. because. I love how Paul uses Stoic philosophy, and I love how he's very clear about what he thinks, at least I think so. And he's okay with criticizing himself, saying that he makes mistakes, and that you know he's, he can understand why people don't always believe in him. In many ways, Paul isn't unlike Joseph Smith in that regard.
1: I agree. So I'm just going to plug your blog one last time. It is called Footnotes to Hume. Thank you for coming on. This was Tarek D. LaCour.